Hello and welcome on The Barricades. My name is Bujan Stanislavski. I'll be your host and the usual co-host of the show, Dr. Maria Chernat, is here with us. Uh, hello, Maria. And hello. Uh, of course, Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter is with us uh, again. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I don't think you really need any presentation. I'm sure our audience is very, very well, uh, very familiar with you. I just want to mention uh, your book, of course, like... Uh, You're, you're an analyst uh, whose <clears throat> whose analysis is 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 very popular uh, these days, and uh, your interpretations, your views, they go against uh, what is presented in the mainstream media, and I think this makes it exceptionally interesting. And uh, this is why we're, we're we have you here. Welcome to the show, and thanks once again for taking time. I know you're very busy uh, these days well, to take the time. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank thanks for having me. All right, Scott. So let's dive straight in, uh, please. Uh, Tell me, what do you think about the current situation, but not in those like, you know, very concrete and specific terms, who won which battle here, you know, which part of Soledad or Bakhmut was taken? I know you, you gave a lot of interviews about that to many different channels and, you know, people can go ahead and watch that. I, I would like to get, get here your view uh, about, you know, what's coming because all those uh, catership movements in on the Russian side and all those uh, increasingly increasingly endangering uh, interpretations that I hear that are floated even in Russian media, in Western media. Everybody seems to be expecting some sort of major escalation within the next couple of weeks, maybe a month, a month and a half. And I would like to ask you, do you, do you share those? Uh, uh, do you agree with those interpretations? Because you like to put like a bucket of cold water on people's heads. So go ahead and, and, and tell me what is your, your opinion here? Well, first of all, I'd like to point out that um, the... The major escalation took place in uh, April and May of this year when NATO and the United States made a decision to inject over $100 billion dollars worth of military assistance and financial assistance uh, into this conflict. Um, you know, we, I'm sure later on we'll get into the, the reasons for this conflict, but let's just be clear. On April 1st, there was a Russian delegation and a Ukrainian delegation sitting down in Istanbul who were prepared to close the deal Uh, on an arrangement that would bring an end to this conflict. On April 1st, had they signed that, this war would have been over by mid-April. Nobody would be dying today. We wouldn't be having this conversation. The decision to extend this was 100% NATO and NATO alone. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of England, flew to Kiev for the express person, a purpose of warning Zelensky off of entering any, in any agreement with Russia. So NATO killed any chance for peace. Then NATO injected $100 billion dollars worth of military aid and financial assistance that not only kept this war alive, but empowered Ukraine to carry out a series of offensive operations in September uh, that were very dramatic in scope and scale. Uh, the Russian response to mobilize 300,000 reservists and to kick their defense industry into wartime footing. Um, so, you know, what's happening now? <laughs> Reality is about ready to hit the fan. You see, Russia didn't mobilize 300,000 troops just for a laugh. Hey, we're just going to mobilize 300,000 people. Hey, we're just going to double military industry production. No, they did it because the NATO, the decision by NATO to intervene transformed this into something as the Ukrainian Minister of Defense has openly acknowledged is a proxy conflict between NATO and Russia, a proxy conflict between NATO and Russia, the goal of which has been expressed by Lloyd Austin, the Defense Secretary of the United States, to inflict pain on Russia. That's it. Kill Russians. That's the only goal here is to kill Russians. Russia's not going to play that game. Russia's going to win this war. Understand that. 
And so the war will be won in the coming months. Russia has mobilized 300,000 troops, and those troops will be put into combat operations. And those combat operations will be decisive and scope and skill, singularly focused on destroying Ukrainian ability to wage war, both militarily and politically. This will happen. There's nothing that's going to stop it. Okay, but but when we have the... Okay. okay yeah, go ahead. Right. So I, I just want to make it clear uh, because it, when when you say okay, Russia is going to win the war, that means they're going to impair the uh, Ukrainian military capacity to the extent impair? that it will well impair, oh, destroy, going to whatever. Kill Ukrainians. Let's be clear. Right. Okay. It's not impair. It's not impede. It's not get in the way. It's not make inconvenient. They're going to slaughter the Ukrainian army. I'm just right, being which is straight up honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's which what is war what they, is. Which is what they have been doing for quite a while now. No, and, no, no, you, no, no. They've no. been they they they've been waging a limited conflict. I'm here to tell you right now, what has been happening to the Ukrainian forces, as terrible as has been, has been part and parcel of a limited scope special military operation where Russia has not applied itself doctrinally. Mm-hmm. That is okay. Russia I was I was thinking to go to war against Ukraine. Right, right. I, altogether. Okay, I was thinking about this uh, when I said that they've been doing that for a while. I was thinking uh, about this what what has been happening Bakhmut and around Bakhmut because even Prigozhin was uh, kind of uh, you know making statements about this being a meat grinder and stuff like that. So I was thinking that perhaps uh, like at least in the around this area they were doing uh, they have been doing that. But anyway, okay, so you are. You agree with this. I mean, there's going to be a major escalation. I mean, there's going to be a major move on the side of Russia, which is going to be a response in your, uh, like what you said, is going to be a response to the escalation that began basically April last year. So this is going to be the next phase of the same escalation, only Russia is going to be making some some great moves. But do you think... Do you think that it is going to look like some major offensive? Because many analysts are like, and many people who are discussing the war, they are saying like, oh, well, Russia is not really prepared to make those arrow offensives. I didn't even know that term before. Uh, uh, (laughs) Right. So I I wonder, do you think that it's really changing now or it's about to change that now Russia is going to massively move in? And when they move in, that means I understand that they're focusing mainly on what they, you know, demilitarization, denazification. I understand that. But does it mean also that they're going to be pushing forward in terms that you know general public can understand like they're going to be taking territory taking kiev i don't know attacking other uh, uh, urban centers do you have any predictions with regards to how, how the dynamics of this process how it's going to go well we'll start we'll start with big picture i mean russian goals and objectives demilitarization denazification remain unchanged demilitarization is a military problem in short it means the destruction of the ukrainian military plain and simple the destruction of the Ukrainian military. That's it. Um, Denazification is a political problem. That means the destruction of the Ukrainian state. These these are the two objectives. Mm -hmm. The Ukrainian military will be destroyed on the ground by the Russian military. The Ukrainian state will be destroyed primarily through the air by the Russian Air Force. We've already seen that begin. The attacks on Ukrainian um, uh, uh, electrical production grid. you know, Ukraine's ability to produce electricity is, you know, dropped precipitously. It may end altogether. Ukraine's, you know, what what is their uh, their economic output is about as close to zero as it can get, uh, and their future is not bright. It's uh, a trillion dollars in infrastructure damage, probably going to be double that by the time Russia finishes. Ukraine will be destroyed as a modern nation state, and the current government will be politically 
uh, neutered. It will be eliminated. It will be made impossible for Zelensky to set foot in Ukraine because Russia is going to humiliate him and humiliate that government and destroy their viability as a political force through the destruction of Ukraine. This is horrible. I'm not gloating over this. This doesn't make me happy. I'm simply saying this is the state of affairs as we see. Now, when you say no big arrow offense, no, that, look, Russia has been doing one thing since the very beginning of this conflict, and that's escalation management. Russia does not want a conflict with NATO, does not want a conflict with NATO. And Russia is not seeking a conflict with NATO. Russia doesn't want to do anything that would encourage NATO to intervene militarily, um, which means Russia will proceed carefully. Carefully is the opposite of Big Arrow. Big Arrow is we're going to roll in there like George Patton or Zhukov or whatever you want to say, Big Arrow, Deep and all that. No. First of all, Russia doesn't have the capacity to do that. Russia would have to double, triple the amount of troops available to it to do big arrow offenses. Russia is going to do very measured attacks that achieve very specific results. The first result will be the liberation of all Russian territory. Now, when I say Russian territory, I know there will be those who say it ain't Russian territory. I'm sorry, from the Russian perspective, the territories that were incorporated under the uh, in the aftermath of the referendum under Article 64 of their constitution is Mother Russia. And Russia is going to take control of every square centimeter of that land, which means they're going to push the Ukrainians not only off that territory, but because Ukraine has shown a proclivity to fire artillery into civilian centers like Donetsk and others, Russia will push the Ukrainians back beyond artillery range, which means that the lines will go back approximately 100, 120 kilometers. Um, that will be modified based upon terrain. Russia might have to take more territory to secure. Um, this is a bare minimum of the territorial uh, things that will take place. Uh, Russia may also opt to uh, acquire new territories such as Kharkov, the oblast of Kharkov, and make it part of Mother Russia through a referendum process as well. Uh, again, you know, Vladimir Putin had made, made a statement the other day that everybody needs to pay attention to, that Russia will protect the interests of the Russian people around the world. He will guarantee their right to speak their language, to uh, you know, worship the way they want to worship, to live as Russians. And if people aren't willing to let them live as Russians, then Russia will help them live as Russians. So that doesn't bode well for parts of Ukraine uh, where there are ethnic Russian majorities and those ethnic Russians feel that they have been oppressed by the Zelensky government. And it's not theoretical. I mean, uh, you know, Arestovich, uh, the advisor to the Ukrainian president, resigned yesterday because he gave, yes. he gave a uh, remarkably open interview uh, to the to the Ukrainian media where he was horribly critical of the Ukrainian government's policy towards ethnic Russians. He said, what do you expect them to do? And he's right. What do you expect them to do? For once, when they're for once like, he said something. Yes. For once he said something right. And now he's on the Mirtorts hit list next to me. I'm very proud to have him on the list. But um. I'm joking. But uh, <laughs> my, my point is that, you know, Russia has been pushed into a corner. And, uh, you know, there's an old saying uh, that Russians are slow to harness, but fast to ride. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes them time to get going. But once they get going, they're off. And the world is about to find out what happens when you harness Russia and Russia starts to go off. It's going to be a completely different thing. And Russia's setting the stage not just militarily, but politically as well. Look at the absolute divorce that's taking place between Russia and the European Union, the European Commission. 
Russia is saying none of the treaty arrangements that exist with Europe are, are in effect anymore. We are done with Europe. We don't care about Europe. Europe doesn't matter. We are a sovereign state. and We will handle everything based upon the notion of national sovereignty. That's an absolute divorce from the direction Russia was going previously, where they were making a good faith effort to incorporate themselves in the West. That day's done. And that also uh, triggers you know, a new political rea- reality in Russia, where in, any Western analyst who's trying to assess what Russia's up to, which direction Russia's going to, has to delete all previous analytical uh, patterns because they don't apply anymore. Russia's not trying to be a part of the West anymore. Russia doesn't care about the West anymore. And this is a huge game changer. I want to say though that I read, I mean, just humor me because I read some interesting articles today in Deutsche Welle and they said that Ukraine is going to get important military equipment like leopard tanks from the Germans, but that they said that they are going to give like 10. And how is this going to be a game changer? Because the title of the article was very bombastic and it was presented in a way like this equipment is going to um, provide Ukrainians with enough power to... To win the war, basically, and with 10 tanks, even for me that I am not a military expert, how are you going to win this conflict with 10? I mean, are these tanks so powerful? Are they, are they from a sci-fi movie? What's going on here? Well, first of all, we, you need to understand that the Leopard tank is not a new tank. It's an old tank. It's been around for a while. Um, also understand that uh, the Leopard tank has been provided to Turkey. Turkey has employed these tanks in Syria. And ISIS, ISIS has shown a really clever ability to destroy these tanks. So they're not, you know, some sci-fi magical weapon that's going to roll in and all Russian ammunition bounces off of it as it roars through the Russians, tearing everything to a side. The Leopard tanks, when they arrive on the battlefield, will be destroyed uh, piecemeal. Um, Why? One, tanks is just a weapon. It's a hunk of steel with an engine in it and a gun. You have to put human beings in that tank. And those human beings have to know how to operate this tank. And taking some Ukrainians who are used to operating a T-64 modified version and suddenly saying you're now leopard crewmen um, is absurd. It's a completely different uh, system you're dealing with. The other thing is maintenance. Leopard tanks are very difficult to maintain. So when they break, you know, normally if, you're, if you're, you have a German tank or a, or a German unit or a NATO unit, <clears throat> and the tank breaks down, you have a maintenance unit right there that's trained to come in, drop the transmission, replace the transmission, fix it up and go. Now in Ukraine, an intense combat environment where things break at a higher rate, these tanks are going to break down and then what happens? Because a tank that can't move is a coffin. And so Germany's going to be giving Ukraine a bunch of coffins. Don't know how to use them. Tanks by themselves are moving coffins. They have to be employed in a combined arms environment where you have infantry fighting vehicles, you have artillery support, air support uh, of doing it. Without that, the tank just becomes a, a moving coffin, as I already said. And it's not just the Germans that are a joke. The British are going to provide 14, let's count them, 14 Challenger 2 tanks, as if that's going to change the outcome of anything. Meanwhile, Russia's bringing 600, 800, 1,000, 1,200 tanks. I mean, it's it's not even a this, – this, this, this is a joke, and it's a tragic joke because all this is doing – is guaranteeing that thousands more Ukrainians are going to lose their lives. That's and, all this guarantees. 
And of course, and it just brings the the end of the Ukrainian state, as you put it, closer and closer. And I'm, uh, and it's even probably going to be, I don't know, maybe more brutal because of those, uh, you know, constant uh, shipping of weapons or whatever, like like whatever their their quality on the battlefield would be, whether they would be coffins or whatever. It just prolongs, extends it all, and makes it more bloody. But you know, I I, I want to ask. I think it's very it's a very important topic, the question of the future Ukrainian state, if there is going to be any. Because, you know, I, it's, it's very difficult to guess, for me at least, it's very difficult to guess where is, uh, what are the, what's the end game here? I mean, are we, because we're obviously facing partitioning of Ukraine, that's, that's the least of all the concepts that I can, uh, you know, observe here. But, you know, when I read the forums of the Ukrainians who live in Poland now, because I'm based in Poland, I'm from, I'm coming to you from Warsaw. And, you know, there are many, plenty of Ukrainians, you know, I mean, my whole district of Warsaw, where I live in the East, I mean, everybody speaks Russian here and the Polish, they, 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 they put all the signs in Ukrainian as if, you know, every, every Ukrainian speaks Ukrainian or, you know, it's like uh, trying to Ukraini, Ukrainify them by force a little bit. But, but, but you see, they, they have their own Telegram channels. They have their own open forums on Facebook, other media, you know, platforms like that. And the interesting thing about it is that they, they actually, they're discussing it. They're thinking, okay, what, what's, what's going to happen? Because some of them, many of them, by the way, they say they're going to go back. Once the war is over, they want to go back, regardless of whether it's going to be Russia or Ukraine, because they don't care about what kind of passport they're going to be having, you know, what kind of idea they're going to be having in their pocket. They just want to go back to their home. Uh, and and uh, that's one thing. But uh, there, are, there is, of course, a group of people who come from this Western Ukraine, and they are very reluctant, you know, to, to, to go back to anything that has anything to do with Russia. And, you know, even those more pro-Russian, so to say, Uh, emigration circles, they, they, they also admit those people from Western Ukraine, they deserve some kind of solution. And where is it? And, and, you know, they're even digging in history, trying to figure out if there is any traditions for, for some kind of Western Ukrainian statehood. And, uh, you know, some of them go back to the 18th century, the kingdom of Galicia, Lodomeria, and so on and so forth. And, you know, and they go like, oh, maybe we should reestablish this. And, you know, I, I understand for some people it's a joke. For some people it's a real prospect because they want to go back home somewhere. And, and you know, most of them don't think that Russia is intending to occupy the whole of the territory of Ukraine. And I wanted to get your opinion about this. Do you think that, you know, the, the, the Russians are thinking actively about it? Like, okay, we're going to go to, to we're going to liberate what's Russia, what would become, what had become Russia after the referendums. But then, you know, there's got to be some future for those other territories, right? And, and what, what do you think? I mean, are they really, uh, are they really going to recognize the kind of uh, sentiments that some of those Ukrainians are demonstrating on those, you know, forums that I mentioned? Well, I don't believe that Russia has any uh, intent to um, occupy Western Ukraine. Um, I'd be surprised if Russian troops entered Western Ukraine, even temporarily. Um, it would, again, be an expansion of the conflict that appears to be beyond the capabilities of the Russian forces that have been assembled. Um, but I will, I will also say this. Um, Western Ukraine is the uh, heartland of the um, ideology of Stepan Bandera. Yeah. That ideology will no longer exist. And anybody who has that ideology in their heart is either going to die or be in permanent exile, but they won't allow to exist on Western Ukraine. So, so whatever the future of Western Ukraine is, uh, it's not going to be a, a place where this odious ideology of Stepan Bandera can exist. I mean, I'd ask the Poles, why don't you give them Volin? Mm. You know what I'm talking about? Why don't you give the Western Ukrainians Volin? You know why you won't give them Volin, because Volin is a symbol of what that hateful ideology is a massacre of 110,000 Polish men, women, and children slaughtered 
by Stepan Bandera and his followers. And yet these, these, this ideology is alive and well and living in Ukraine today. They just celebrated the son of a gun's birthday. They, the minister of defense uh, or the, you know, the chief of the armed services is illusioning took a picture with Stepan Bandera in the background. They hold parades, they have monuments and all this stuff. All that will be eliminated eliminated that will not be allowed to exist the hateful neo-nazi ideology of stepan bandera will be stamped out once and for all either by russia or by whatever government takes place takes the place of Zelensky. there will be no Zelensky government the russians have said he is a neo-nazi supporting government it is a nazi government it is gone it is finished Zelensky's done so whatever the future of ukraine will be it will be somebody other than Zelensky. there's some thought that uh, zeluzhny the general might be a guy. Uh, the Russians, even though they have every reason not to like this guy, have been saying nice things about him, calling him a man of honor, um, a man who, you know, a warrior, a man who has fought honorably. Um, and so when you say things like that, that means you can sit across the table from him and come up with the terms of surrender for Ukraine. So I think this, you know, the, I think anybody who thinks that they're going to go into Western Ukraine and have some sort of independence and freedom and whatever. I think they're, they're just misguided. Russia will never allow that. Uh, Russia's but not going to say again. What are they going to do, for instance, because my fear is that, okay, they win this story, territory where they have majority, I mean, the majority of population is Russian. So then you have the Western Ukraine joining NATO and beginning all over again with this ideology, what are they going to do to prevent it? Because if it's in the people's heads, then it's very difficult to, to control it. Well, first of all, Western Ukraine won't join NATO. But what's going to happen, I believe, is that after the Russian offensive takes care of the north and liberates the territories and pushes back, they're going to pivot south. And they're going to pause. I call it the Odessa pause. Uh-huh. They will pause before they move on towards Odessa, and they're going to give Ukraine a chance to surrender at that point. They're going to say, here are the terms of surrender. They're going to be harsh, but in exchange for accepting this, we will allow you to keep Odessa. Mm -hmm. And by keeping Odessa, that gives Ukraine access to the sea, economic viability. They can survive as a nation state. At that point in time, I would anticipate the Ukrainian military recognizing the inevitability of defeat will make a move to remove Zelensky and put somebody in front of the Russians to accept this deal. If that doesn't happen, then Russia moves in, takes Odessa, links up with Transnistria, and now we have the totality of what they call southern Russia and Novaya Russia. Um, and it will be Russia forever. It will never go back. But Russia will never allow Western Ukraine to be independent. The yeah, Belarusians won't allow it. And yeah, it won't be part of NATO. Sure, sure. And, and I, wonder, I wonder whether perhaps this could be also... Uh, whether this could be positive uh, that, you know, people who have emigrated from Ukraine to Poland and to many other European states are actually floating this idea of, of having some, some kind of, of digging to some kind of historical traditions of their, of, of this Western Ukrainian statehood, which dates back be, before Stepan Bandera. You know, that's, that, that's, that's that what you're be, saying. That might look, Russia is a big proponent of self-determination. They better be. Because they just use that argument to uh, to hold referendum, so I I I, I don't think that it's um, intellectually inconsistent if one of the solutions was for a post-conflict Western Ukrainian state to be formed based upon the the, the concept of um, 
you know, the, 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 the self-determination. Uh, but yeah. that Western Ukrainian state uh, would have to be complete. Let me just put it this way. If you're a supporter of Stepan Bandera, you're either going to die, be imprisoned, or go into permanent exile. You will not reside in Western Ukraine. That's just uh, the Russians cannot allow that to happen. Because as, as, as Maria just hinted, if it does happen, then you get this cancer, this cancerous tumor in the middle of Europe that's just going to fester and be poisonous. And it's going to be, uh, and remember, Poland has no reason to love a, um, a Bandera Western Ukrainian state. No one has a reason to love this. It, it would be literally a, a hateful regime that would generate political violence everywhere. So Russia, having sacrificed so much to achieve what I believe is going to be this victory, can't allow that to happen. They'll be willing to sacrifice more to destroy this. But, you know, one, one, one solution may be, um, you know, whatever remains of Ukraine uh, be given uh, the ability for self-determination. Because I have a funny feeling that Western Ukraine is not going to want to be subordinate to a Kievian rump state which is all that's going to be left of Ukraine once Russia takes over uh, things. So, And, you know, I'm also thinking that it's, it, it, it can prevent, like, this is, of course, a bit of a political fiction here, but that's my hypothesis, that if there is, in, if there is a trend in place for some kind of self-determination, which is not linked to Stepan Bandera and all this Nazi nonsense, uh, you know, th then I think it's also, it would also, could also be healthy for the people of Western Ukraine, in a sense that, you know, it will send a signal to Russia, to where, to the West, every, to everyone, that, look, we're, we're, we want to... We don't want to have to do with this. We don't want to be, you know, a place which basically breeds Nazi ideology and things like that. We want to, we want to be something else. And I, and I think it could not only prevent Russia from sort of stepping in massively, if it, if it would at all, but, all, but, but it could also prevent maybe, you know, some kind of weird moves from the side of NATO. Like, I don't know, maybe Poland intervening, Romania intervening well. at the behest of. I think I think we I think NATO I know Poland understands this I hope Poland understands this mm. that if they intervene in Western Ukraine every Polish soldier that enters Western Ukraine will be dead yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope they understand that that there's no there, there's no chance of success Lukashenko has made it clear that Belarus does not want to be involved in this conflict Belarusian troops will not enter Ukraine unless Ukraine either invades Belarus mm. or Poland moves into Western Ukraine. That uh, the red line is Polish occupation of, of, of Western Ukraine, uh, then Belarus. And now they have a powerful joint military grouping of forces that's more than capable of defeating anything Poland could put put on the ground. So I, I hope Poland got that signal. Here's the other thing, too. When we say self-determination for Western Ukraine, understand this. It isn't really self-determination. Why do I say that? Because Russia is not going to leave any outcome up for grabs. It will be a dictated outcome It'll it, because there will be a lot of political constraints put in place. Um, you know, for instance, <laughs> constitutional requirement to ban banderism, um, a permanent neutrality, permanent neutrality um, and, and things of that nature. And so it's not as though the Western Ukrainian people are going to be able to come in and say, this is what we want. It's going to be them applying to a Russian victor saying, We request that you, you know, give us this. That, it, it's that sort of thing because Russia is not going to take. This is a war that, for it to be anything other than a Russian defeat, has to result in a decisive Russian victory. Because 
look, Russia, you know, Russia's objectives were well-defined before this war, a new European security framework. That's all they wanted, a new European security framework that kept Ukraine neutral and pushed NATO back, not, not politically, but in terms of infrastructure, back to 1997 lines. That means Poland and Romania have to get rid of these uh, American air defense systems, uh, missile defense systems, which are now offensive missile launchers. Um, if they don't want to, then you know, Russia, Russia's already shown what it's going to do. They're not going to invade. But Russia, is, for instance, Finland wants to join NATO. Russia just is, is building a, a massive group of forces up in Karelia. Um, Poland wants to play games with, uh, you know, having its aircraft be qualified for nuclear delivery. Uh, nuclear weapons are now in Belarus and Kaliningrad. Um, I mean, you know, so the, Russia will escalate this as far as it needs to be escalated. And at some point in time, I believe Europe is going to fracture into two, two groups. I'll call it old Europe, which is France, Germany, and others. We're going to say we need to find a way to peacefully coexist with Russia. We saw the Dutch prime minister say exactly. that at Davos the other day. Okay, that is the trend. Then there's new Europe. And this is the Baltics, Poland, Czech, Romania. And they're going to say, no, we need to be more proactive against the Russian threat. But the problem is, once you strip away old Europe from new Europe, new Europe can't stand on its own two feet. I mean, if yeah, Poland and- thinks they can take on Russia alone... I'd like to know what drug they're taking. I'd like to have some of that because it's the heck of a yeah, uh, hallucination. By the way, very, very good question. Very good question because I've asked myself the very same question actually when I heard yesterday or the day before yesterday the Polish president uh, Andrzej Duda speaking to Davos saying that Russia cannot be led to win this war. And I was asking myself the question like, what is Poland intending to do in order to prevent Russia to actually, you know, win that yeah. war? And since when? Who, like, since when is Poland deciding such things? Like, which war is Russia going to win? And he said it with such a with with, with such a confidence and arrogance and all the rest that you're kind of thinking, yeah, I mean, he's not all right in his head. Yes, this no, is I- very dangerous. Also, I would like to add, if you allow me, that this is very dangerous because the day we celebrated the Romanian army. I was very surprised to find out that Romania has one of the most powerful armies uh, in the world. And it, it it was spoken by the officials, you know, not just a crazy neighbor of mine, but the officials were saying that. And I was like, what? That, <laughs> Are <very> you sure? <laughs> because this is very dangerous, especially for us civilians, you know, because this type of attitude and declarations, you, you can imagine that these people who are making them are going to run to the first sign of trouble. Me, Boyan, and the ordinary people are going to stay here with the, you know, and face the consequences. Yeah, I'm, you know, one of my, I have two big concerns out of this conflict. Um, one is that Poland will do something stupid in Western Ukraine. Um, I'm I'm very concerned about that, but I I do believe Russia has made its intention quite clear of what the consequences would be, and um, even if Poland is successful in building this 300,000 man army, um, that's not enough. The other fear that I think is even a greater fear is that um, <clears throat> Romania will collude with Moldova to do something precipitous with Transnistria. Um, uh, especially in an effort to somehow distract or disrupt a, a Russian offensive, especially if Russia makes a move towards Odessa. And um, the, the, the scary part is if uh, the Romanians actually believe that they have the most powerful army in the world. 
uh, because then they might take action and then they'll find out the hard way that they don't have the most powerful army in the world. Um, I, I hope it's just political rhetoric. I mean, look, Romania is in a difficult position right now. Uh, they are a frontline state. Uh, they're hosting an American, um, you know, uh, brigade uh, that that is designed to send a signal against uh, Russia. Um, and so Romania is getting a lot of advice from the United States about standing tall, looking strong, et cetera. So that's what they're doing. But I hope they understand that the United States doesn't intend to go into Ukraine. Uh, and, and the United States is not going to intervene in Moldova, that the United States is just going to stay where they are um, as a defensive organization and that any Romanian offensive action, Romania will be on its own. And I, sometimes I think that both Romania and Poland don't understand that. No. And if, they, if, they, if they move forward, they're on their own. They're by themselves. NATO's not with them and they will pay the consequences uh, thereof. Um, and so I, I, I mean, am concerned. Historically, NATO will say that we will protect you, we will do this and that. And once the problem starts, you know, and the trouble starts, then you find out the hard way you are on your own. And they will keep saying, we, we have your back, we have your back. And... In reality, and, they will not do anything. And, and if I may, if I may, just add here because Poland's been in a situation like that before. It's it was in uh, April and uh, through the summer of 1939. You know, the British were tapping Poland on the back, saying like, "Yeah, yeah, go, 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 go for war. Yeah, absolutely, no problem. If Hitler attacks you, we have your back." You know, and and then of course they took. Uh, there was this famous speech in the in the British House of Commons that the British people aren't going to die for Gdansk and stuff like that. So I mean, the history seems to be kind of repeating itself. Of course, as a in a farcical situation because everything's even more, com well, I don't know, comical is maybe not the right word, but more pathetic now than it used to be because every thinking person can see what, it, you know, how things really are. And, and you know, you're right. I think you're totally right when you say that you're afraid that Poland can do something very stupid because, you know, this, what the Polish president said, and many other things that were uttered here for Polish consumption, for internal Polish consumption, this is very, very serious. And at the same time, People who, who see what's happening with the Polish army, they can see that this army isn't going to go out of any barracks, isn't going to go out of any trenches because it hasn't gone out yet of its paperwork because they've recently reformed the recruitment system in the army. They don't have enough staples. So like, you know, they're not going to win anything. And if they go there, they're just going to jump into the meat grinder of history like they did in 1939. So, yeah. you know, this is just a kind of very, very strange self-perpetuating mechanism. Uh, I, I, and they believe, know, they're they believe they're great. They believe they're great. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, every nation believes they're great, um, and and not I have us, no problem. Not us, not us. I don't believe. Not us. <laughs> no, no, okay. Well, <laughs> I, well, I'll say this. Um, you know, I'm not going to pretend that Vladimir Putin walks on water or that he's the perfect this, that, and the other thing. I think he's been the best president Russia could ever hope for. Uh, pull him out of the 1990s, the horrific situation that exists in the 90s after a decade of. Uh, Of, of corruption of Boris Yeltsin. He's brought Russia, he's, he has Russia standing on its own two feet. He's reinvigorated Russia's economy. He's brought pride back into Russia. Um, but he's also a realist. And Ru Russia has, again, the, the, the escalation management of this conflict has been outstanding. And what, and what I mean by that is, look at the patience of Russia. When they mobilized, what's the... You know, the first thing you did is stabilize the front lines along, you know, in 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 in, uh, in, in eastern Ukraine, uh, because you know the Ukrainians took back Kharkov, they took back the right bank of Kherson, and this was problematic. So the Russians stabilized it. The next thing they did 
is build up the forces in Belarus. Why? If your main, if your main focus of military effort is going to be Eastern Ukraine, why would you build up your forces in Belarus? And the answer is to preempt any Polish stupidity. They're creating a mission impossible for Poland. They're expending a tremendous amount of military resources that could be better used in Eastern Ukraine if you were singly focused on that, to, to, to have that position in place, not to use them, but to have them as, as, a, as a force in readiness in case Poland does something. So that's called escalation management. And they've done a very good job of that. Now they're building up the rest of their forces in Eastern Ukraine. And just based upon two things, one, um, Russia's holding an exercise with the Belarusian military right now that's scheduled to end on February 1st. It's an exercise designed to ensure that the totality of the forces are combat ready. Two, the head of the um, defense uh, mobilization, I forget his name in Russia, but he just issued a statement that said basically everything has to be in place by February. So that tells me that this offensive, Russia's not going to launch an offensive in the east until the military group of forces in Belarus has been certified as combat ready. So that means at a minimum, nothing's going to happen until that exercise is over. That's February 1st. Now we're told that everything must be in place in Eastern Ukraine, all equipment, all everything in place by February 1st. So I think if we're looking for a time when this attack is going to begin, and I think the Russians have given us quite a clear signal that this is going to begin sometime after February 1st, sometime in early February. Right, and I'm sure we're going to have a chance. I mean, I hope we're going to have a chance to discuss it with you again after you know the picture kind of clarifies after this this begins whatever the Russians have. After I've been uh, proven wrong in every assessment, right? It's <laughs> a danger. It's <laughs> a danger yes, of making predictions. You know, That's true. You're like That's ah, true. Da, 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 da. That's true. But, but you know, uh, let's now speak a little bit about the, kind of the other side of the war, so to say. Let's just uh, have um, you know a discussion about because the Polish the Polish president when he spoke to Davos, he said uh, to the forum. Forum, you know, to the World Economic Forum, he not only said that Russia can never be led to win this war, that Russia is, uh, should never be allowed to uh, to save face, that even even that. Like, so that's a, that's a very strange concept. Like, I mean, you you really want to give them the message that we're going to kill you, we're going to eat you alive unless you defend yourself. I mean, this is a very very strange strategy to kind of weaken somehow uh, the Russian morale. What they're doing is they're consolidating and strengthening it uh, this way. But but also he said that every War criminal must be put to international, you know, court justice and uh, all the rest of it. Which I thought, like, okay, I mean, of course, I, if there is, if, if any war crimes are proven, then of course every war criminal who ordered or supervised them or overseed oversaw them that they have to be, uh, they have to be prosecuted and they have to be taken to some kind of international tribunal. But I think you know what, the list is long before we get to the Ukrainians, Russians, and stuff like that. What about all the people who have you know uh, been involved in in you know American wars? Uh, or American provoked wars, like, our, like for example, right? Like, like the a million illegal invasion have, of Iraq, the illegal yeah. occupation of Iraq, Yugoslavia, yeah. which is basically the country Serbia, that you know yep. I used to live yep. <laughs> right at, uh, like Sofia, the, the place in Bulgaria, the, yep. the capital of Bulgaria. I was born forty kilometers to the Serbian, then Yugoslavia, Yugoslavian, now Serbian border. So uh, the list is really long, and I, and I wonder, uh, like, 
you know, how how long is this going to take? I mean, how long is this hypocrisy going to be fueled with all those increasingly weird and and, and pathetic statements? Uh, because I, I feel that they are increasingly weird and pathetic precisely for the reason that it stopped working some time ago. I mean, it's still working by inertia. Many people in the world believe that Russia is the utmost evil and so on and so forth. But I think it's just not, not, not as effective as it used to be in April last year or in May last year or in March when the whole psychosis basically began. What do, well, what do you think? Imagine you're the Argentinian national football team hmm. and you're holding your World Cup trophy and you're walking down the streets and a Polish middle school team of eight and nine-year-olds come out. We're going to kick your butt. We can beat you any day. Messi stinks. You guys are awful. We're going to... How much attention is the Argentinian national team going to play to the middle, pay to the middle schoolers? Are they going to get upset? Are they going to feel threatened? Are they going to demand a match? Or are they just going to keep moving on? They're just going to keep moving on. Do you really think Russia's losing any sleep over anything the Polish president says? Do you think it registers on the Russian radar? It doesn't. Poland doesn't matter. All Poland is is a outpost of NATO. That's the only thing that gives Poland any relevance to Russia today, is as an outpost of NATO. And NATO's made it clear that NATO doesn't intend to put any boots on the ground. Um, NATO has been, you know, butting their heads up against red lines from day one in terms of equipment and all this stuff. And we see them now, I mean, with this ridiculous talk of leopard tanks and, you know, Martyr, uh, Bradley, Warrior fighting vehicles, Challenger 2 tanks, Patriot missiles. Um, you know, this is a huge escalation. Uh, when, when, the, when the defense minister of Ukraine acknowledges that he is nothing other than a proxy of NATO, whose job is to arm him so he can go and kill Russians, <coughs> that literally makes NATO <coughs> a party to the conflict. And if Russia wanted to enter an international law, I just want to remind everybody of this. Um, in Poland and in Romania, if you allow heavy material to transit your borders, knowing that its intent is to go into uh, into Ukraine, if you allow training to take out, you are a party to the conflict. Russia legally right now can blow you off the map. Russia's not going to because Russia doesn't want a war with NATO. But understand, when people talk about international law and the laws of war and all this stuff, Poland, Romania, Germany, Netherlands, everybody providing assistance is a party to this conflict legally and they can be bombed legally i will tell you this the united states would never allow this to happen okay if russia was the united states and it was fighting a war in ukraine and poland was allowing weapons to transit and move in we would blow poland off the face of the map we would bomb every site in poland where material was coming in because that is what you have to do i if i were a military planner i would be begging the opportunity to take every Polish site off the map because you're an enemy of mine now. You're not my friend. You're an enemy. You're an active participant in the conflict. People need to understand that. Now we come down to you talking about war crimes. Um, one of the differences between today and, say, May, June, um, is that we have three really, really critical confessions that have been made. Confessions that change everything. The confession of Poroshenko, the confession of Angela Merkel, 
and the confession of Halin, the former French president, that the Minsk agreement was a sham, that they had no intention of implementing Minsk. And remember, when we say Minsk, it's not just an agreement between France, Germany, Ukraine, with Russia sitting as an observer. Um, they took it to the United Nations and got a Security Council resolution that makes implementation of Minsk mandatory under international law. Understand what I just said. Mandatory under international law. And now France and Germany, two members of the United Nations, France is a Security Council member, are saying we never had any intention to allow Minsk to go forward. A Security Council member, permanent member of the Security Council, is a liar, cannot be trusted. Germany, which puts itself as, oh, we're the great negotiator, we're the common sense people, liars from day one. And of course, Ukraine, liars. You know, turns out that Vladimir Putin was the only honest negotiator there. He said, yeah, we'll do Minsk. We'll do Minsk. And he'd been trying to get Minsk ever since. Russia up until the final day was saying, all you have to do is implement Minsk and this war will not happen. This war will not happen. He begged Joe Biden in June of 2021 in Geneva. All you need to do, Joe, is get Ukraine to sign on to Minsk and all this problem goes away. And Biden said, I promise you. Turned to Blinken publicly and said, I'm ordering Blinken to do this. And Blinken went, yes, boss, but Blinken wasn't going to do it because the United States is a party to this as well. Remember, why was it a sham? To buy time to train a Ukrainian military to NATO standards for the sole purpose of carrying out offensive operations against the Donbass and Crimea. That was the purpose, the stated purpose. Angela Merkel, we need to buy them time so they can do this. Well, the United States is the one that put the permanent training facility in western Ukraine that every 55 days trained a battalion of Ukrainian troops at NATO standards and then sent them off east to kill Russians. We trained 30,000 people. NATO had other training facilities. Another 30 to 60,000 people were trained. A total of 60 to 90,000 people were trained for the purpose of killing Russians. NATO trained them. And it was part and parcel of not just the rejection of Minsk, but it goes back to 2008. If you remember in April 2008, William Burns, the president, uh, the, 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 the ambassador of the United States to Russia, wrote a memorandum. Net means net. He said, if we invite Ukraine into NATO, we are setting off a sequence of events that will inevitably lead to a Russian military intervention in Ukraine that will result in Ukraine losing the Donbass and Crimea. 2008, April, November, they invited Ukraine in knowing what it would accomplish, knowing that they, by inviting, they are inevitably leading to a conflict with Russia. This has been a Western war from day one. From day one, this is the war the West wanted. This is the war the West said will occur in 2008. This is a war that the West prepared for since 2014 by rejecting the only pathway to peace, which was the Minsk Accords. So now we come back and reflect on what Russia said in justifying this conflict. Preemptive collective self-defense under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter. Russia's case is 100% cognizable. Russia didn't carry out a precipitous war of aggression, unprovoked war of aggression. Russia was provoked every step of the way by NATO, by Ukraine, by Germany, by France, by the United States. They had no choice. Russia exhausted every venue short of war to prevent a war. They sought the Minsk, uh, Minsk Accords up until the very end. They put draft treaties on the table or a new European security framework. They did everything but get on their knees and beg for this not to happen. And only when Ukraine began to mass these trained NATO trained troops in Eastern Ukraine for an offensive that was scheduled to begin in April or March, 
did Russia launch its special military operation? And even though, even then, the special military operation was limited in scope and scale. Another fatal mistake on the part of Russia. The first fatal, fatal mistake Putin has acknowledged. He should never have signed on to the Minsk Accord. He now has apologized for that. He said it's a mistake. Why? Because when the Minsk Accords were signed, Russia had surrounded 10,000 Ukrainian troops in, Don, in Donetsk. And they were going to annihilate them. And that would terminate this whole problem. Reverse the reverse Kiev, reverse Maidan, change everything. But he was convinced by Hollande and Minsk uh, and Merkel not to do it. He said that was a mistake. He'll never do that again. And then the 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 the, the second mistake was the special military operation. Um, they should have gone in whole hog. Instead, they went in. You know, soft. They went in under you know some misguided intelligence. They went under some misguided planning assumptions, um, and they were wrong. Uh, the Ukrainians not only weren't going to surrender, they were going to fight. Um, and then they didn't believe that NATO would intervene the way they did. So Russia made a series of mistakes. Russia's out of the mistake business right now. Russia's. This is why when I I, I laugh um, and believe me, I'm somebody who believes in peace. I know Maria, you don't believe that, but I do believe in peace. I want peace. I don't want people to die. A war is not cool. War is not wonderful. War is horrible. Um, and yet, Russia has no choice at this point in time. Uh, because how can you negotiate with the West now? Does anybody really think that Russia can sit down with Germany after what happened? Sit down with France after what happened? Sit down with the United States after what happened? Sit down with Ukraine after what happened? The day, the day of negotiations is over. The only negotiation that's going to take place regarding Ukraine is something that's going to be similar to what happened on the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay in September of 1945, where the victorious United States led coalition allowed the Japanese to come on in and sign unconditional surrender documents. Ukraine will be given the opportunity to sign documents of unconditional surrender. That's it. Anybody who thinks that somehow this is going to end in a negotiated settlement is, is fooling themselves. Russia's out of the negotiation business. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, here I, I just want to, I just want to ask this because, uh, like, vis-a-vis -vis everything. Are we going to said, have a second segment, or are we going? To... No, I think we should just go ahead and continue with with this because you know okay. I, I think it's very it's very interesting because vis-a-vis -vis what everything that that Scott just uh, you know said about like the sham of the Minsk agreements and so on and so forth, you know, they still keep portraying. Russia as the utmost evil, as like they are the evil force. They keep lying. They keep, you know, doing all those cruel things and stuff like that, as if they are, you know, uh, the, the, the kind. Of, they also keep repeating that it's an unprovoked war. By the way, Caitlin Johnson wrote a very good commentary saying that you, you're not an adult person if you keep repeating that it's an unprovoked war. And so, so uh, what I'm trying to say here is that, okay, all those things have happened. NATO trained the, the, the Ukrainian troops, you know, and stuff like that. And yet, you know, the, the Russians refer to, as you, as you said, refer to General Zelushny as the man of honor or something like that. What honor do they, do they have in mind? I wonder, like, what are exactly. they referring to? It's a, it's a um, well, I mean, in theory, He's, you know, look, Maria, I know you don't agree with this, okay? I respect your opinion. I respect your point of view. And I, 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 I you know, I wish we lived in a world where your point of view prevailed. 
No, but no, unfortunately... I, just on a question of honor, since you touched upon that. For me to put war and honor, soldier and honor in the same sentence is, is very difficult to accept. But then I, I think there is a logic to it in the sense that maybe since you are in a war, you just don't torture civilians, you don't torture and kill, capture soldiers. And maybe this is the part of honor that even somebody like me, who's a feminist and a pacifist, will be willing to accept that if you are in a, that horrible situation, I mean, don't make it worse than it already is. Maybe this is... Right, well, let, let me put... And I'll, and I'll expand on that. Let's understand that war is humanity at its worst. It's very worst. It's about mankind killing mankind. Okay, that's it. And there's nothing worse than that. It's literally... That means that everything that we're supposed to represent, intelligent beings with a soul, spirit, know the difference between right and wrong, it means that all that's gone out the window. We've now become animals, literal animals. And, you know, it's not a game. Um, you know, Bojan, if you and I went into a room and only one of us could come out, you think I'm not going to be an animal? Do you think of giving the opportunity, I'm not going to bite your nose off, gouge your eyes out, rip your throat out, do everything I can to win this fight because it's life and death? No, that's animalistic combat. And that's what war is. Now, we've civilized it by bringing in weaponry. So I can shoot you long distance. I can blow you up long distance. I can do a lot of things uh, with technology now to increase the lethality. But at the end of the day, if I close in with you, it's not going to be a gentleman shaking hands, rules win a boxing match. I'm going to rip your head off. I'm going to drink your blood. I'm going to be so animalistic in my approach to terminating your life because otherwise I create an opportunity for you to kill me. This is literal life and death. So now, Maria, now that I've painted that picture, now imagine I'm a Marine Corps officer and I'm in charge of Marines who can be that animal I just described. That when I hit the on switch, if, if I don't control them, it will be ugly because once you become an animal, Nothing matters. Life doesn't matter. Laws doesn't matter. Nothing matters. You're just an animal. So now my job is to control that, to train these Marines to retain the veneer of civilization, to retain a code of honor, which says, I kill the enemy so long as they're trying to kill me. But the second they put their hands up, I stop killing you see, you can't, that's not automatic. I just said, if I'm in a life and death struggle and Bojan said, I, I surrender, I'm not going to let him surrender. I'm going to kill him because I'm an animal. And now I'm a trained Marine. I surrender, boom. I take you, I take care of your wounds. I get you in the rear. I give you food. I give you shelter and I treat you properly. That requires discipline. And that requires a code of conduct. It requires people to accept rules, to put on this animalistic urge to kill. And that's where honor comes in. That's where men of honor, women of honor come in. People who can work knowing that what, what's being unleashed is the worst thing in the world and doing their best not only to survive, but to do it in a way that preserves a modicum of civilization, a modicum of humility. Because if you don't do this, Maria, and you go home having been an animal, you'll never recover. You'll never recover. It's going to ruin you for life. That's why so many people have PTSD. So many people can't adjust because they saw and did so many horrible things. So this is why I speak of honor, war. I know that um, I know that we, 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 unfortunately, I've got to run pretty soon, but uh, yeah. we, 
you know, that, that's where honor comes in. Um, would it be, I would prefer not to fight a war, but if I'm going to fight a war, I prefer to have men and women of honor in charge to try and keep it as humane and civilized as possible. And I will tell you this, there's more honor in the pinky of a good soldier than there is in the entire person of a politician who lies their way into war. There's right. no honor in a politician who lies. It's the people who have to pay the consequence where the honor is, because at least through their actions, they might preserve some integrity of the nation they represent. A politician like George W. Bush, who lied America into a war, deserves no respect, no dignity, no nothing. The generals and the colonels that led the American troops over the border, that did their best to try and control a horrible situation, they're men of honor. Just like I think the Russians might, might make an argument that Zeluzhny is a man of honor. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, yeah, please, please tell me just for the end of the program, the last 30, 45 seconds, tell me what what honor are they referring to in the case of Zeluzhny? Like, what are they hoping to get from him if he if all those transgressions happen in Kiev that you described earlier? Military, understand this, military officers love their country. They they love their, they're willing to die for their country. And when they get to a situation where they, when they understand that death becomes meaningless, that their country won't be saved just by continuing to die, then they're willing to stop fighting to save their country. Um, and I think Zeluzhny, they're hoping that at some point in time, Zeluzhny is going to look at reality and understand that continued resistance is futile, will simply sacrifice the men and women under uniform that he loves, and that the best chance for his nation to survive with anything left would be to seek terms of surrender. Um, and I think they're hoping that, because Zelensky's a politician, and politicians and deserve... An Yeah, no, well, yeah, deserve nothing. He's willing to, to sacrifice his nation and the people for whatever cause he's promoting. Zeluzhny may be the kind of guy that understands in the end that once resistance is futile, look, you put up the fight, you can. But when it becomes clear that continued resistance will only result in the death and destruction of your soldiers, the people you're trying to protect, and the nation you're sworn to defend, then the best way to defend your nation is to end that conflict and bring it to a, 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 a termination. I know, but this is what's been happening. I mean, the Ukrainian strategy seems to be involving reinforcing failures. Like, I don't know, yeah. maybe I'm... That's, that's no, you're, like, you're right. I, but that's the NATO strategy. And maybe Zeluzhny will wake up someday. Unfortunately, I do have to run. Right, um, right. Thank you. Thank right. you so uh, much, Scott Reader, so for, uh, for joining us here on this program. Maybe and, we can uh, continue it another time. Absolutely. I hope you... Uh, yeah, I... I Definitely, we're going to invite you again. Thank you once more. And uh, uh, right, to all of you out there, if you liked our program, please hit all the you know necessary buttons here. And if you can, support us via PayPal or Patreon. Thank you once again and see you in our next segment. Goodbye.